Thank you. Oh my goodness. Good morning. I just have to know, how many of you were also at the first service? Show hands. Wow. How many of you were at the second service? How many of you were in bed? I'm just kidding. You don't have to raise your hands. Well, regardless whether you're first, second, or third, honored that you would join us. As we really continue the series, the morning we talked about, is there evidence for a mind or a God behind nature? Has this God revealed himself in the person of Jesus? We saw the evidence for the resurrection. Then the natural question is, if there is a God who loves us and revealed himself, why is this world so broken? Why are things messed up? I mean, daily when I read the news, it's clear we live in a broken world. I mean, just pop up the news. Look at some of the stories that hit. Uh, of course, there's something about Trump. We won't comment on that either way. Mayor apologizes after a viral video of police confrontation. Courtney Cox turns 55. I mean, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> India tariffs, another mass shooting, panic at Costco, uh, Puppy sounds, there's always puppy stories, right? We know that. Woman admits to smuggling plane parts. Judge dies after a heart attack. Uh, my goodness, you just start four people dead, another shooting. You just start reading through the news any day. And it's clear this world is broken and it's sinful and we hurt. But it's not just the news out there. It's something we've experienced, isn't it? We've seen evil. We've suffered. We've personally wondered, God, if you are good and powerful, why didn't you just fix it? That's a natural question to ask. You see, evil and suffering in the world doesn't directly call into question the existence of God. It calls into question the goodness of God. If there is such a God, is he really good? So even some of the greatest thinkers, you'll recognize people like Albert Einstein seem to kind of believe there was some design or purpose or mind behind the universe, but really had a hard time with a personal God because of the problem of evil. People like Charles Darwin, interestingly enough, so many people think it was his science that drove him away from God. That's not the full story. Much of it was motivated by the premature death of his daughter. In fact, if you read The Origin of Species, a lot of it is about the seeming suffering and brokenness of the natural world more than just about the science. Even people like Bart Ehrman, you may or may not recognize him, but he's probably one of the most influential living skeptics today. Grew up in a, went to Moody Bible, went to Wheaton, and then eventually became an atheist slash agnostic in some fashion. And he is a textual critic. He studies ancient texts tied to the first century and early church. Brilliant scholar. But it wasn't his textual criticism that drove him away from God solely. He wrote this. He said, I left the faith for what I took to be and still take to be. An unrelated reason. The problem of suffering in the world. I saw an interview with Stephen King not long ago. He said, you know what? I think there's some mind behind the universe it's hard to believe this God is personal when I see the suffering and evil in the world in which we inhabit. But this isn't a question that just non-believers and skeptics ask, is it? In fact, Habakkuk, the minor prophet, said, How long, O Lord, must I call for your help, but you do not listen? Or crowd to you violence, but you do not save? 
The question of why there's evil and suffering in the world is not just a question skeptics ask, it's a question humans ask. All of us look at the world and think, gosh, if we were in charge, we'd do things differently. Maybe God's not there, or maybe God is not good. He could have stopped this, why doesn't he? We have three kids, and I remember my wife was pregnant, and we went in for the 12-week checkup. And I'll never forget, the doctor was taking longer than normal on the ultrasound, and she had zero bedside manner, and just goes, oh, we can't find the heartbeat. Let's go to another room and see if we can find it. I'm like, she just dropped it on us like that? We go to another room, turns out my wife had had a miscarriage. We're not expecting it, and I remember just crying together. Now, I have a friend who's had eight miscarriages, so I realized, I mean, my pain pales in comparison to that. But it's natural when we see suffering and we see acts of evil to wonder, where is God? Why do we hurt? Is God really good? See, as we think about this issue of the problem of evil, it's important that we kind of define what we mean by this before we try to make sense of it. So I kind of split the problem of evil first off in what we might call the emotional component of the problem of evil. So I graduated from Biola University in 1998, and my last semester, I took a class called Introduction to Apologetics with one of the top 50 philosophers in the world who's now a colleague of mine at Biola named J.P. Moreland. Maybe you're familiar with him. Best schools named in one of the top 50 living philosophers. So I took a class in apologetics. And when I was done with that, I was like, I got an A in JP's class. I am ready for conversation and interacting with people because I've got the answers. You know where this is going, right? Must have been about 22 years old, and I was going to spend a year working for my father, traveling as an assistant for him. We're in Breckenridge, Colorado. Have you ever been beautiful ski town? up in the mountains, a couple hours outside of Denver. And I went to get my hair cut, and I was carrying this Christian book by Leslie Newbigin called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Sat down to get my hair cut, and the lady was probably in her upper 20s. Sit down the book, and she goes, hey, are you a Christian? I said, yes. She said, do you mind if I ask you some questions about God? I said, no problem. Inside, I'm like, bring it on. I just aced apologetics. <laughs> You're talking to the right person here. I sit down, and instantly she says, one thing doesn't make sense to me. If God is so powerful and good, why is there so much evil in the world? And inside I'm thinking, that's all you got? Like, people have been given answers to this for a long time. I'm like, think about it. You can't have good, you can't have evil without good. You can't have good without God. Have you ever thought about how your question presumes that God exists? I said, furthermore, God didn't want us to be robots. He gave us free will. And if he's going to give us free will, he has to allow us to cause evil, to do evil. She asked a question, ready with a response. I mean, we were going back and forth. Inside, I'm thinking, I am killing this. Like a typical male, just clueless to the female's emotions. Although I've come a long ways, my wife would attest. All of a sudden, in the middle of this conversation, she kind of takes a step back, and she starts to cry. She goes, this is a bunch of expletive. I'll let your minds fill in the blank. She goes, you've got an answer for everything. It can't be that simple. And it made me really nervous because she was kind of shaking, holding scissors to the back of my head. <laughs> and inside, I'm like, man, alive, like Miss Sensitive here. We're having a great conversation. So I changed the topic, felt bad, gave her a big tip, and started walking out. I said to my friend Jason, who was there at the time, I said, man, what is up with her? Like, we're having a great conversation, and she's crying. Like, come on. 
And he goes, he goes, Sean, do you have any idea how arrogant you were towards her? And it was like it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like time stood still and I realized I was interested in sounding smart and winning an argument and not even ministering to this person who's probably asking a real, raw, important question. Talk about missing the point. I realized for most people, I'm convinced when they ask, why is there evil and suffering? They're not asking, can you fix this logical problem about how God is compatible with evil? Most people are asking, why do I hurt? Why do I suffer? Where is God when he can fix this? Is your God really exist? Is he really good? This is the emotional component of evil, so to speak. So for me, now whenever somebody asks me, why does God allow evil? I almost always ask a question back. Of all the questions you can ask about God, why that one? Now, what does that reveal? The person says, oh, I was just watching Batman vs. Superman, and Lex Luthor, the bad guy, stated if God is good and powerful, he could stop evil, and yet evil exists, so maybe there's not a God. The problem of evil is actually stated pretty clearly in that film. Or the person says, I was sitting in class and my professor said, then you know the person's asking the intellectual question. More often than not, someone says, why is there evil? And you say, tell me why you asked that question. You'll hear, my uncle is dying of cancer. My parents just got separated. I lost my job. It's something personal. And how we respond to somebody who's asking, why do I hurt? And where is God when I hurt? is very different than how we answer the question, how does the Christian worldview make sense of evil and suffering? You see, when somebody's hurting, the Christian response is not to give them a Bible verse, namely Romans 8.28, that God will turn all things to the good. In fact, given this Bible verse, turn that frown upside down. Sometimes citing a Bible verse is one of the worst things we can do. Not that it's not true, but it just might not be the helpful response in that moment. Like Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. When somebody's hurting, sometimes we feel like we got to fix it or we have to say something. Sometimes the best response is to just say, I'm sorry, and be present with that person and hurt with them. On the flip side, when somebody's happy, the worst thing we can do is be a downer is they want somebody to be happy with them. This is the Christian response. When somebody's hurting, it requires a pastoral, loving response. And sometimes as Christians, we're uncomfortable with this. But this is part of the reality of living in a broken world. See, if you look in the story of Job, which I know we're all familiar with, which may be the oldest book written in the Bible, it's about an upright man who loses everything. And the question is, is God still just and good amidst this tragedy? We know friend, Job's friends show up, and they actually, despite what people say, they did everything right. Job's friends did everything right until they opened their mouths. <laughs> Do you know what it says? They sat with him for a week and mourned with him. 
And then when they open their mouths and try to explain it, they mess it all up. We have some good friends, in fact, tied to some of my dad's best friends for years, who lost a 15-year-old to cancer. Just so tragic and painful on so many levels. It doesn't make sense, as hard as we try to make sense of it. I'll never forget something this 15-year-old said. He said, the greatest present you can give someone is your presence. Isn't that brilliant? Friends, when we talk about evil and suffering, we've got to find the question behind the question and figure out what is this person really asking and try to address it appropriately. Now, this morning we're going to shift to talk about what we might call the philosophical problem of evil or the logical problem of evil. So we've kind of moved from addressing this pastorally to how do we address this intellectually? Now, why is this important? I think for a couple reasons. There's outsiders looking in at the faith saying, I'm only going to believe this if you have a good explanation for why God allows evil. On the flip side, there's also Christians who experience suffering and are trying to make sense of this from within our worldview. One of my favorite radio show hosts I enjoy listening to is Dennis Prager. Conservative talk show host has these great PragerU videos. I did a short one about two months ago. Wonderful little videos. Well, Dennis Prager has a book called Happiness is a Serious Problem. Like a great title for a book. And in the book, one of the things he cited is he said, couples who experience the sudden tragedy of a child, based on his research, the majority of them would either get separated or divorced as a result of this tragedy. And he wanted to know why do some couples get separated and some couples are able to withstand this. And what he said, I'll never forget. He said one of the key differences is these couples who experience the tragic loss of a child, but they have a philosophy of life, a belief system, a worldview that can at least make sense of why tragedies and suffering happens, are more likely to withstand this together. Doesn't mean they grieve any less. Doesn't mean the pain is any less. But there's something about seeing why God might allow evil and suffering and what he's doing about it that can powerfully help us when the world doesn't go the way we want to make sense of it. Now before we jump in and look at the philosophical question, here's something to keep in mind. If you hear this morning, you're like, great, Sean is going to tell me why I have experienced suffering and evil. You're going to walk out of here in a half an hour very disappointed. Whenever somebody starts a question and says, Sean, why did this happen and fills in the blank? My answer has to be, I don't know. I mean, unless God specifically reveals to us, we may not know this side of heaven why some tragedy or suffering happens. If your expectation is to know, you're going to be disappointed. But that's not the way I frame this question. What I want to know is given all the worldviews that are out there, which worldview makes the most sense of the evil and suffering in the world and offers the best existential and philosophical response? You see the way we frame this? It's not just Christianity that has to make sense of evil. So does Islam. So does Buddhism. So does atheism. So does Scientology and Mormonism. What I want to know is which worldview makes the most sense of why this world is broken, why we suffer, and offers the best philosophical response and existential response. 
That's why I'm a Christian. Not because I know exactly why God allows every act of evil. Of course I don't know that. But I think Christianity makes the most sense when we step back and look at this question from the perspective of worldviews. So let's start by looking at what we even mean by evil. What do we mean by evil? Well, C.S. Lewis famously said, and he was an atheist for years, he said, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how would I get in this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this, comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Do you see the brilliance of what Lewis is saying? He was an atheist looking at the world saying there can't be a God because it's unjust. Things are broken. Things are crooked. But then he started to think, wait a minute. If I'm saying the world is unjust, there has to be a standard of justice. If I'm saying the world is broken, I'm saying there's a certain way the world is supposed to be where it's fixed. If I'm saying a line is crooked, there has to first be a standard of straight. Do you see what his point is? As an atheist, you can call the world broken only if there first is a design about how the world is supposed to be. But that only makes sense if there's a God who made the world to be a certain way. Friends, his point is brilliant. It's brilliant. Now, you might think about it this way. So, you can have good without evil, but you can't have evil without good. So, you can have justice without injustice, but you can't have injustice without first having a standard of justice. So, let me say it again. You can have good without evil, but you can't have evil without good. Just like you can have right without wrong, but you can't have something be wrong unless there's first a standard that is not right. So here's an example in a way to think about it. So Ying, you, you've often maybe heard about this idea in Taoism that good and evil are equal opposite forces. Friends, this doesn't capture the nature of evil. Good and evil are not equal and opposite forces. Rather, good, I'm sorry, evil is a twisting of something that is good. So think about it this way. Say you have a, 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 a wrench according to its original design. Now, if you wash this wrench and you don't let it go bad, it could stay this way in principle. What happens when this wrench goes bad? It gets what? It gets rusty. So you can have an original wrench that doesn't go bad, but you can't have a rusted wrench unless there's first an original wrench that gets rusted. So another example take healthy teeth. And I know some of you know where this is going. Let me just save you the pain. Don't Google tooth decay. I was like, oh, I'm going to get a mild picture to make the point. I was like, ah, why did this happen? Why are people taking pictures of this? Now you understand the point. You can have healthy teeth and they could stay that way if you take care of your teeth. If you don't brush your teeth or if something goes bad, maybe you get some kind of cavity or condition, then you get decayed teeth. So do you understand what the point is? Stop and think about this. Evil is a corruption of what is good. Evil is not an equal opposite force to good. It's a corruption of how things are supposed to be. So you can have good without evil, but you can't have evil without good. One more way to think about it. Think about truth 
and lies. Can you have truth without somebody telling a lie? Of course. But can you tell a lie without there being such a thing as truth? No. Because a lie, by definition, is an intentional twisting of the truth. So a lie, in a sense, is parasitic upon truth. Similarly, decay and rust is parasitic upon healthy teeth and a wrench. Evil is parasitic upon good. So if you complain about the problem of evil, what are you assuming exists? An objective standard of good. And how do you get an objective standard of good if there's not a God? Ironically, raising the problem of evil is essentially saying the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Or it is the way it's not supposed to be. Both assume there's a way the world is supposed to be. Which only makes sense if there's a designer and a mind behind the world. That's why the existence of evil is one good argument to believe that there's a God. A friend of mine, uh, Frank Turk, was debating Christopher Hitchens, who I mentioned in my last talk on the resurrection, who wrote the book, God is Not Great. So this atheist wrote a book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. My friend Frank Turk, a Christian apologist, was debating him. And he kept making the point, he said, Christopher, you're an atheist, and you're saying religion makes the world bad, and it corrupts things. But if you're going to say it makes the world bad, you have to have a standard of how the world is supposed to be. But if atheism is true, the world just popped into existence, and there is no way the world is supposed to be. He said, Christopher, you're borrowing from my worldview to critique my worldview. In fact, he said, Christopher, you sit on God's lap to slap him in the face. That's a good line. I had a debate with a high school teacher a number of years ago. who's was a PhD, and I told my wife, I'm like, man, I'm going to use that line. She goes, no, you can't. I said, why not? She goes, he's from Jersey. He can get away with it. You'll sound like a punk surfer boy from California. <laughs> and she was right. Now, before we look at how we respond to the problem of evil, do you see how we framed this? The problem of evil itself really only makes sense in a world in which there is a God, in which there's a design, in which there's an objective standard. This doesn't tell us why God allows evil, but it helps us realize if we're going to look at the world and cry that things shouldn't be that way, it assumes we believe that there's a way things should be, which only makes sense if there's a God who made the world to function a certain way. Now, Sam Harris, a well-known atheist, uh, he stated the problem of evil about as well as I've seen anybody state it. He said this in his book, Letter to a Christian Nation. If God exists, either he can do nothing to stop the most egregious calamities, or he does not care to. Notice what he's questioning. Questioning the power of God or God's care and goodness. God, therefore, is either impotent, lacking power, or evil lacking goodness. There's another possibility, of course, and it's both the most reasonable and least odious. The biblical God is a fiction like Zeus and the thousands of other dead gods who most sane beings now ignore. You see his point? God is all powerful, he could stop evil. If God is all good, he wanted to, and yet evil exists. So therefore, the most reasonable explanation on his account is that this God is not real. Now, 
Here's a way to put it kind of in premise form so it makes sense. Premise number one, if God is all-powerful, he can stop evil. How many believe God is all-powerful? Okay, so we have to concede this is true. If God is all good, he would want to stop evil. How many of you believe God is all good? Okay, and yet evil exists. Therefore, God, in terms of being all-powerful and all-good, does not exist. This, in premise form, is essentially what's called the logical problem of evil. That the existence of evil and the Christian God is like having a square circle. It's impossible. He says you have to give up one of them. Now, for this conclusion not to follow about God not existing, we have to at least challenge one of these three premises. Then the conclusion wouldn't follow. Now, do you know what the Eastern religion approach is to the problem of evil? They deny premise number three. There really is no evil. Distinctions are artificial between you and me, body and soul, today and yesterday, good and evil. I don't know about you, but a response to the problem of evil that says, actually, there's no problem, is profoundly unsatisfying to me. If there's anything I know, it's that when I look online and I see evil done. Last night I was watching that movie with my kids, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, I think it was. If you have not seen this on Netflix, you have to watch it. It was powerful about the Holocaust. That movie was done. I talked with my kids. I'm like, if you don't think that's evil, something's wrong with you. It's obvious. That response that says evil doesn't exist in Eastern religions doesn't even come close to me. It's an illusion. It's Maya. No way. So we have to look and say premise one or premise two. So let's ask this question. If God is all good, he can stop evil. I'm sorry, if God is all powerful, he can stop evil. Now, will God stop evil someday? Yeah, he will. Someday he's going to stop it and judge us. But in the present Why couldn't God be all-powerful and have a world without evil? Why doesn't he stop it now and let life continue? So I'm curious. You said you believe God is all-powerful, but how many of you believe if God is all-powerful, he can do anything? Let me see your hands. If God's all-powerful, he can do anything. Okay. All right, I've got a paperclip for you up here, especially for you students. Are you ready? I'm going to offer a free scholarship to Biola University. In fact, I'll throw in an extra year so you get five years. If you could take this paper clip and bend it into a square circle. Any takers? There's usually one who goes, I don't want to try. Now, there's not takers. Why? Because you know you can't have a square circle, it can't exist. If something has four points, it's necessarily a square. And given the nature of a circle, it's necessarily not a circle. Either you have a square or a circle or some other object, but you cannot have an object that has only four points and be a square circle. It's not possible. Now, what if we brought in our old governator, Mr. Ronald Schwarzenegger, Could he, because he has probably more power than anybody in here, I would assume, could he bend this into a square circle? No. 
You bring the strongest person who's ever lived. I was actually sitting on a flight one time and this huge guy was sitting next to me. Struck up a conversation with him and he was the bench press world record holder in the world. And he's a Christian. And he says to me, he goes, yeah, I, we got in a conversation. I asked him, he goes, yeah, I hold the bench press record for people over 40. I can't remember, it was 700 plus pounds, whatever it was. I said, what about those under 40? He goes, yeah, no one under 40 could do this. It takes decades of training to have old man strength, he called it, to be able to bench press this. I'm like, okay. So I pulled out a square circle. I'm like, you're pretty strong. Can you turn this into a square circle? Now, of course, he couldn't. It doesn't matter how much power you have. No increase in power makes something impossible able to be done if it's impossible by its very nature. The Bible actually says there's some things God cannot do. The Bible says God cannot break a promise. God cannot tell a lie. God cannot cause himself to cease existing. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, you're limiting God. I had a student go, wait a minute, so I can lie and God can't, I'm more powerful than God? I said, no, you have it backwards. You can tell a lie because you are not morally perfect and you can be tempted. God cannot tell a lie. That's not a weakness. That's a perfection because God is maximally great. Friends, it doesn't matter how much power you have. You or even God can't make a square circle because a square circle can't exist. What's the point? People often say things like, can God make a rock so big that he can't Move it. Have you ever heard this one? Whereas Bart Simpson would say, could God make a burrito so big he can't eat it? (laughs) Now, if you say, yes, God can make a rock so big he can't move it, then God is limited. If you say, no, he can't do it, then God is limited. Either way, God can't be all powerful. Well, the response is simply to say, God can do anything that power can do. That's what it means to be all powerful. If power is capable of doing something, God can do it because he has all power. But if something cannot be done, even if God has all power, he can't do it. This isn't a limitation on God. It's a recognition that the idea of a square circle itself or rock so big you can't move it is absurd and incoherent within itself. So interestingly enough, when we say God is all powerful, we mean God can do anything power can do that is consistent with his perfectly good moral nature. So God can't lie because he's holy. So here's the question. If God is all-powerful, can he stop evil? Yes, he will. All of us are going to stand before God someday and give account for every action and thought we did. But even God can't make a world in which people have genuine free will and then force them to always choose that which is right. Even God can't make that world any more than he could make a square circle. Alvin Plantinga, arguably one of the greatest living Christian philosophers today, he wrote this. He said, a world containing creatures who are significantly free is more valuable, all else being equal, than a world containing no free creatures at all. He's saying freedom is an intrinsic good. Now, God can create free creatures, but he can't cause them or determine them to only do what is right, because they wouldn't be what? Wouldn't be free. 
For if he does so, then they aren't significantly free after all. To create creatures capable of moral good, therefore he must create creatures capable of moral evil. And he can't give these creatures the freedom, oh, sorry, stop right there, the freedom to do so, and then actually turn around and take it away. Alan Planck is right. So God can create a world without evil. But even God can't create a world with genuinely free beings and then determine that they always do what is right for therefore they aren't free. What about our second question? If, gosh, did I just, there it is. I skipped it. If God is all good, he would want to stop evil. If God is all good, he would want to stop evil. Now we're not questioning the power of God. We're questioning God's what? God's goodness. Does he care? Is he omnibenevolent? Now again, I point towards C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis said something brilliant. He said, God whispers in our pleasure but shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In other words, If you think God is interested in you having and experiencing the American dream, however you define that, pain and suffering comes along, then of course we're going to question God. But God is interested in deeper things in this, isn't he? He's interested in our moral development. He's interested in having a relationship with us. He's interested in us becoming people who are in relationship with him for eternal life. And Lewis says it's actually in a world with pain and a world with evil that rouses people to ask the big questions of life and consider God in a way they don't without pain and suffering. One of the amazing things about pain and suffering, it sure seems to me, is it doesn't necessarily change people's beliefs, but it clarifies where we really stand with God, doesn't it? When pain and suffering hits, either people kind of tend to say, God, I need your mercy. God, I need your grace. They read the Psalms and they cry out to God for help. Or people say like Job's wife, why don't you say, curse you, God, and die? That's what evil does. C.S. Lewis says, maybe God allows some pain. Maybe he allows us to live in a broken world. Because this is what it takes to rouse human beings to stop thinking about the things that dominate us day to day, stop distracting ourselves on our smartphone nonstop, and think about the issues that matter most. Look, if you suffered in your life, what happens? Bam, it's like time stands still, and we cannot but reflect. Man, is this life all there is? God, are you real? And is there really life after death? Is the Bible true? So some of the greatest uh, thinkers of our day, um, people like, you know, I'm going to skip through that for sake of time. I'm going to go back to one here. Sorry. You might recognize this name, Francis Collins. Francis Collins was the head of the Human Genome Project for years. Brilliant scientist, head of the NIH, still was under Obama and is still today, I believe, under Trump. Well, he was an atheist. And interestingly enough, when he was in medical school and went in hospice, he was seeing people suffer and die. And do you know what got his attention and roused him? It was seeing Christians die 
differently than other people. He saw Christians die with like a contentment, with a peace about life, even a kind of transcendent joy that doesn't make sense if you're an atheist and this world is all there is. So he goes and he reads Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and is ultimately drawn to the faith. You know what's amazing? Those people who suffered might never know that their lives resonated through one of the greatest scientists today and his life and ministry. Maybe because God is good. Maybe because God is drawing us to eternal life. He allows some evil. He allows some suffering. Because it's what C.S. Lewis said. This is his megaphone to rouse the deaf world. Lewis also said, imagine you go to the dentist and you've got a cavity and the dentist is rooting out that cavity and it hurts. And you're thinking, stop, if you were a good dentist, you wouldn't hurt me. And the dentist is thinking, actually, to heal you, I have to root out this cavity which hurts. Maybe it's because the dentist is good that he allows this pain and hurt in his life. Friends, there's no contradiction between God allowing pain and suffering and being good. In fact, we know in our lives many times that allowing some pain and suffering and evil is for an ultimate good that we may not even see in this life itself. I want to show you a little video clip. I'm going to click, click through this uh, quote I had here. And, uh, oh, did I, you know what, maybe I did not include the video clip in this, come to think of it. Um, so I'll just share the story I mentioned in the earlier part about my, my father. I mentioned this in the first. My father grew up in a small town in, in Michigan, sexually abused seven years, sister who was committed suicide. My dad's dad was a town drunk. And we were sitting around as a family maybe five or six years ago, and my mom was sharing funny stories growing up in Boston and my sister Heather goes, hey, Dad, share a funny story. Like a good memory you have when you were a kid. Awkward silence. I'll never forget it. My dad looks at us. He goes, kids, I don't have one. And I sat there and wept and thought, not one? Really, does a day go by with not at least one good memory, let alone a week, let alone a month, let alone a year, let alone a childhood? Well, my dad, as I mentioned earlier, set out to disprove Christianity thought it was false, surprised by the evidence, but ultimately drawn by the love of God. That's what scripture talks about. It's your loving kindness that leads to repentance. My dad and I were having a conversation a while ago and he goes, you know, son, he goes, I thank God for my alcoholic father. And I said, you're gonna have to explain that one to me. That doesn't make a lot of sense, especially given our relationship. He said, you know, God has used in my broken past to give me a heart and a motivation for this world and this generation that runs deep because I know what that pain causes. He said, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't go back and change it. God used that brokenness in my life. Maybe because God is good, he's able to take the brokenness my father was raised in and transform it for good to love him and through him other people. You know, what we've looked at so far is kind of just a response logically to what's called the logical problem of evil. In other words, as we saw, God is all-powerful, he could stop evil. But we saw, wait a minute, even God can't make a world with truly free beings and coerce them to do good. 
Second, if God is all good, he would want to stop evil. Yes, he will stop evil someday. But maybe God allows a world with pain and suffering because he's drawing people ultimately to him with eternal perspective. All this shows is that the logical problem of evil, it does not follow that God doesn't exist. There is no logical requirement that because of evil, God must not be real. But what we haven't asked is what's the unique Christian response to the evil and suffering in the world? And this is where I think Christianity is unique. So in the 19th century, there was a priest by the name of Father Damien. Maybe some of you have heard a story before. Father Damien heard about uh, a leper colony in Molokai where these people were living with leprosy and they were dying without any priest to care for them. So by his own admonition and free will, with full awareness of the potential risk he was taking, Father Damien went and became a priest for this kind of clan or tribe of, of lepers. He prepared food for them. He prayed for them. He preached to them. He counseled them. He buried many of them. He lived his life caring for this leper colony. Until one day he gave a message where everything changed. He stood up in front of him a dozen years after ministering to him. And he opened up his robe and he said two words. We lepers. He showed the first signs of leprosy. Let me ask you a question. A couple questions. Did they know that he cared for them before he got leprosy? Yeah, they knew that. I doubt any of them questioned that. What changed on the day he became a leper? And you know the answer. Now he's not just an outsider caring for us, but he is one of us. He understands. He suffers like us, and he's given everything to love and care for us. So who is Jesus more like? Father Damien before he got leprosy? Or Father Damien after he got leprosy. Friends, the unique Christian story is that God didn't just send a prophet. God didn't just send a book or an angel. But it's only within the Christian faith that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, stepped into his creation, took on human flesh, and allowed himself to suffer and die at the hands of his own creation to ultimately save and redeem us. It's only in Christianity in which you can't say, well, God, you don't understand when I suffer. And Jesus is like, yeah, I mean, I was crucified. God, you don't understand. My family is so difficult. They betray me. And Jesus is like, yeah, my family kind of tried, my brothers tried to lead me to Judea where I'd be killed potentially. I was an embarrassment to them. I mean, part of the power of the Christian story is sometimes we say, where is God when I suffer? Where is God in the middle of this evil? God is absent. And part of the Christian response is God is right there suffering with us. He understands and empathizes 
I mean, on a small level, my son is six, and yesterday he fell over and skinned his knee. He doesn't need me to come and go, well, son, it's going to heal because the platelets are moving and the blood, like, that doesn't help. He wants me to hold him, give him a pat, get him some ice, and tell him everything is going to be okay. He wants somebody to understand and empathize. The Christian story uniquely is that God understands. He became one of us, experienced the depth of hurt and alienation and suffering and evil and ultimately promises eternal life. That's the unique Christian response. It's response of truth, but a response of relationship. And that's why you look at the different, what's so interesting, you look at the different symbols of world religions. You have the chubby Buddha guy, crescent and the star for Islam, the uh, star of David and the Shinto cross, and you can think, or the Shinto gate, and you can think of other type of symbols. What's the unique Christian symbol? It's the cross. Have you ever thought about that? The most unique defining symbol for Christians is God taking on human flesh and suffering for us and offering us eternal life. God is not distant. He's right there with us in our suffering. And yet he promises, like what Joseph said to his brothers when they were afraid he was in power and was going to use that power to suffer him. He goes, oh no, don't worry. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In other words, we don't understand how things are playing out in front of us. But God is powerful and God is good and is ultimately working everything for his good. The question is, can we trust him? That's the question. A friend of mine, his name is Doug Groteis. He's a brilliant philosopher. Denver Seminary, written huge, thick books, just making the case for Christianity brilliantly. Well, his wife was even smarter than him. She was actually a part of a, I forget the exact title, but it was like the National or the International High IQ Society. Bonafide genius. Can you imagine being a PhD philosopher and your wife is just naturally smarter than you? It's just the way it goes. Well, interestingly, she started coming down with a rare form of dementia. And this bonafide genius couldn't remember simple tasks like how to tie your shoe, over years. And we interviewed Doug Groteis on our podcast, and I asked him, I said, what are the temptations you had to fight? He said, you know what it was? The biggest temptation was to believe that I knew better than God. He said, that's what it was. Daily, I thought, if I was God, I would do it differently. And I'd have to remind myself, I'm not God. God knows what he's doing. God is in control and is ultimately working this for good. Do you know why I believe God is good? Because if you just look at the world, it'd be tempted to think the world is messed up and there's good. It's because Jesus has risen from the grave. That's why I believe God is good. Can you imagine being the apostles? Jesus is arrested and they think, and he's put to death. From all their perspective, they thought Jesus was the one And they discover he's taken away, he's crucified. Everything they've been doing the last three years is for naught. We were mistaken. God is not acting here. Ironically, 
in their greatest despair, God was doing his greatest good. That's the key. We don't have all the answers. We have reason to believe God exists. We have reason to believe that God is good when we look at the person of Jesus. We have reason to believe that God is sovereign and powerful because he rose Jesus from the dead. I don't know every reason why you may hurt and suffer. There are things in my extended family right now that hurt and they're painful just like in yours. I know that God is good. I know that God is in control. I know that God does not abandon us when we hurt and if we trust him, he will comfort us in this life and will be with us for eternity. Amen? Amen. Fred, thank you. Come on up. I am wiped. You guys took me for everything that I'm worth here, which I appreciate, believe it or not, because it matters to you to train your folks to defend their faith. So thank you for having me. I'm going to sneak to the back. The book, Evidence, is back there. If you haven't got a copy or want one, I would, I would love to sign this for you. It's the book my dad set out to disprove Christianity, was surprised by the evidence, ended up coming a believer, and we just updated it. The amount of evidence for the Christian faith and resurrection, I think, is really remarkable. And then the last one back there just called, So the Next Generation Will Know, is just a practical guide. Any caring adult, what are specific tools we can use to pass on the faith to this younger generation who has more intellectual and moral challenges just one click away, I think, than any generation that's ever lived? If you're looking for some practical ideas, that may be one that would help you out. I'm going to sneak the back. would love to say hi answer questions, sign a book, but most importantly, have a great Father's Day. Thanks for having me.